I'm an introvert, and the, the problem is, is that I'm also a socially capable introvert. And so a lot of times you run into introverts and they're just not really good around people. Um, but because the gospel compels me to share the, the gospel with people and because my job requires me to talk to people, um, I, I'm okay at engaging someone in conversation. The problem is that my skills end when I have to figure out how to get out of a conversation. Uh, so I'll start talking and I will have no, and so this is how introverts are. Okay, if you're an introvert in here, you might understand. Like you talk to people not wanting to talk to people, but knowing you have an obligation to talk to people. So when you start talking, there's no end goal in mind. And I realized that like halfway through and I'm like, what do I do to get out of this mess? Um, and honestly, many of you have probably experienced this. My conversation ender nine times out of 10 is big gulps. Well, see you later. And I just quote dumb and dumber and walk away. Um, and to complicate this even more, this showed up uh, on my first date with my lovely wife, Sarah. And, and we met, we met at Liquid Planet downtown. Um, I thought it was a great meeting. I thought I nailed it. Uh, she thought otherwise. Um, and so as I was walking away feeling good about myself, she was getting ready to call her mom and say, I'm not dating this guy. Um, but stronger minds prevailed. Uh, anyway, we, we were leaving the coffee shop, so we're standing like in the entryway, and we're like, oh, this was good, this was fun. She was lying straight to my face. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so we, so awkward. I don't remember how, like, I might have like given her a high five or something, uh, or like shook her hand, like, good day, sir. Uh, and then, we, so we, we, we end this conversation, but then we realized we parked in the same parking lot, like around the corner, and, and so we're just like walking next to each other. And you guys, if you've been there, like this is an introvert's worst nightmare because it's like, I've already said goodbye to you. What am I supposed to do in this time? Like restart up a conversation that I have no hope of ending or and like, at this point, I thought I did okay. And so like, there's a larger margin of error if I open my mouth now to ruin this entire thing. And so it just was like this weird, we said goodbye, but we're not yet goodbye and I'm sweating and it was just horribly awkward. And I start panicking like, uh, in this is a SpongeBob episode where he gets asked a question and you see inside his mind and and there's just like fires everywhere and they're just throwing everything into a fire running around. That's what my brain is like. Um, and so here we are. We're nearing the end of school. We're nearing the end of Romans. We're nearing the end of GCF. But I want you to take heart because Paul is a lot better at ending things than I am. Um, and as I stand here trying to end this semester, I don't stand here trying to end it in my own uh, rhetorical fancy. I, I, I fall on what Paul has already done. And one thing that's really important for us to consider in these last few weeks of school is how do we finish well? Because here we have, and I don't know if you guys have experienced this in your devotions, once you get to like Paul's final remarks in any of the epistles, it's like, I'm done. I made it. And you like cash out. Um, but Paul, in this closing, these closing remarks we're going to look at this week and the next week, we see that Paul um, really packs a powerful punch still and in a transformative way. And that's because Paul is really concerned with how everyone ends. He's concerned about the long-term game. I mean, look at how Paul himself talks about his own life um, nearing the end in 1 Timothy 4, verses uh, 6 through 7. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure have come, has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
And so here Paul's talking about this finishing component, fighting well, finishing well, finishing the race. Um, and, and I want us in these next two weeks to consider what does it look like to finish well at the University of Montana so that as we go our separate ways this summer, we might live to the glory of God this summer and come back next year in a way where we have a greater capacity to do what God has called us to do. In these next two weeks, Paul is going to press, press and challenge how we view our summers, our desires, and our goals. And so as we are looking to summer right now, just as a whole in Montana at the university, we also want to look at Paul's life in the end of the book of Romans. And what we're going to see tonight is that Paul's concluding remarks show us an assumed church-wide responsibility, a gospel role model, and a reliance upon a sovereign God. Um, we see a church-wide responsibility, a gospel role model, and a reliance upon a sovereign God. And so we're going to unpack that a little, um, but let's just pray tonight. Lord, we thank you that there are no throwaway passages in Scripture. And even as we look at Paul's goodbyes, um, we see divinely inspired words spoken by God, preserved by the power of the Holy Spirit for the good of us. And Lord, in the same way as Paul is impressing um, important concluding remarks on the church in Rome, Lord, we also in this station in life want to have the gospel impressed on us in such a way that we're reminded how to live well once the letter has ended. We're reminded how to live for your glory once GCF is gone, once our friend circles uh, at the University of Montana are disbanded, once we're back in our old system of life with our old friends and our old habits. Lord, we pray that we do this well. We pray that you shape our minds with the beauty of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, we're kind of going to be skipping around uh, in Romans 15. We're looking at verses 14 through 33. And what we're going to look at is kind of three implications of this text. And the first thing we're going to see tonight is the church's responsibility. The responsibility that the church has um, as a group of Christians. And we, we'll start by looking at our first two verses, um, verses 14 and 15. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. So Paul is making statements here, and he's making statements about the readers of this letter. The people who are reading this letter are Christians, and they are in Rome. And these statements are more than just statements. They're also assumptions. right? Paul is making these statements because he's assuming these things are true for the believers who are in Rome. And the first assumption, which then becomes a responsibility for us, if Paul's assuming this, we should be responsible to replicate this, is that we as Christians ought never depart from the gospel. The assumption for the church, the responsibility from the church, is never to depart from the gospel. Look back at verses 14 and 15 and listen to what Paul is saying. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace of God, because of the grace given me by God. So Paul is writing this massively influential letter 
to the Roman church. The book of Romans is a, a hugely important book in the, in, the, in the scope of the whole Bible. And what Paul just said is that he didn't write the book of Romans as an introduction to Christian doctrine. He didn't even write the book of Romans as a higher level campaign in theological method. Instead, what Paul just said is he's writing Romans as a reminder of what he assumes the church is already teaching. He says, I'm writing this by way of reminder to you. So the weight of Romans and the gospel that Romans unpacks isn't like the church does one thing and every now and then we'll wade into looking at the gospel or we'll wade into looking at theology or we'll wade into looking at the glory of God in salvation. Romans is first and foremost about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And more than any other book in the Bible, it looks at what happens on the cross and it shapes our relationship with God and it shapes our relationship with others. And in Paul's mind, what we just saw is that the gospel starts the church, the gospel sustains the church, and the gospel grows the church. So this means as, as you guys grow up and you graduate here, you move away and you're looking for churches, if your churches don't sound like the book of Romans, don't look like the book of Romans, don't talk about God like the book of Romans talks about God, doesn't worship like the book of Romans stirs us to worship, your church isn't doing church things. Because the assumption was, this was a, a sticket note to what was already being proclaimed in Rome. Paul's pointing back to what should have already been shaping the church. The gospel is what shapes the church. And this is where we need to clarify some things. Because we live in an age where gospel-driven, gospel-saturated, gospel-centered, gospel-motivated, gospel-redundant is on every facet of Christian literature we see. Right? How many of you have seen just this week on the internet gospel dash something. It's everywhere. But not everything is the gospel. The tendency, though, is because gospel's good and gospel means something good, we kind of append gospel to anything. The gospel has become anything that has to do with God, Jesus, or the Bible. But the problem with that is the existence of God is not the gospel. The fight of creation versus evolution is not the gospel. A fascination with end-time speculation is not the gospel. An obsession with the Holy Spirit is not the gospel. Christian words sung in passionate emotional songs are not the gospel. The gospel is the event where a sovereign God sent his perfect son to sinful humanity to save those men by dying on the cross for their sins, paying their punishment, and rising again to bring them true and new life in him. The gospel is first and foremost a specific event which is to be believed in. This means that everything is not the gospel, but the gospel's everything for Paul. So when we start thinking about things, we can justify, man, I'm doing gospel-centered things. My church is doing gospel-centered things. But if you stop and if you look, and if at the center of what you're doing or what your church is doing, if what your college ministry is doing is not the cross of Jesus Christ, you are gospelless, not gospel-centered. Words don't have meaning. The gospel of Jesus Christ as an event of, that secures our salvation has meaning. There's no what's next for Christians outside the gospel. 
It's not, okay, I believe in Jesus, what's next? Where do I get my shining stars? Where do I get my upper level, my, my kind of hidden knowledge, understanding of what it means to be a Christian? When do I get to like read people's minds and say prayer requests that make people cry? We always look for this like kind of exciting experience in Christianity, but it's because we get bored with the gospel. And by looking outside of it, we're not showing maturity. We're actually showing immaturity. You see, you need to not only see the gospel, but you need to return to it over and over and over again. In your life, you have a responsibility as a Christian to be part of a church. That's what Paul's assuming here. And that church, and in your life, are you entertained by the beauty of the gospel? Just think about that. I wrote that phrase today. I didn't like it at first, but I really like it. Does the gospel entertain you? You think about how we, how we, we feel or how we act when we're entertained. We're content. We're satisfied. We're not itching for something else. When you look at the beautiful story of God's redemption, does it entertain you? Do you see your needs being met? When you look at the cross, does it shape how you respond to hardship and life choices? relationships, and suffering. And again, I'm not just talking about how does the, the existence of God shape it? Because God has chosen to allow us to know him through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't know God outside of the gospel. So to answer those questions well, we have to know what the cross says about my breakup with my girlfriend. What the cross says about my grandma who's dying without knowing Jesus. What the cross says about my future and my career and my studies. And here's the thing. If, you, if, you, if you're a person who sees what Paul says and you're like, I'm not obsessed with the gospel. I don't even have a clear understanding of the gospel. Or maybe you have a clear understanding, but you don't know. Because it's hard. When I say, how does the gospel shape your response? When I say that very frequently to college students, a lot of them stumble to apply it. And typically it's this some vague answer of, God has a plan for my life. But that's not the gospel. It's part of the gospel. It's hard to apply things. But the good thing is when we learn that, we can also correct that. And man, if we don't know how to apply the gospel to our lives, but we realize that, that's a grace of God in your life. And actually, for GCF Summer Session, um, one of the books that we have here for you to read is called Hidden in the Gospel. And if you're a person who, who knows the gospel is important, but you're not entertained by it, you're not fascinated by it, you're not preoccupied with it. I encourage you to read Hidden in the Gospel um, by William Farley. It's only 128 pages. It's a short book, but read it, and it will help frame your thoughts on this issue. So the first assumption is that we don't move past the gospel, not in our life, not in our church, not in our ministry, not in our affection. The second assumption Paul puts forth is that gospel belief will lead to gospel action. There's no gospel belief if there's no gospel action, and there's no gospel action if there's no gospel belief. Again, look back at verses 14 and 15. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So you see what he says there, and then he, he goes on to say that this is a reminder. And so he's tying those two things. Um, he's saying here that the church has heard the gospel, the church has understood the gospel. And because of that, they're filled with all knowledge, right? There's no secondary juju for Christians. There's no secret sauce. The gospel is what we have, and it's sufficient. 
And he assumes that people who are filled with goodness, filled with knowledge, filled with the gospel, that they instruct one another. That's what he says. I'm satisfied that you're capable of doing that. That means if you're a believer in here today who knows the gospel and is fascinated by that gospel, you should be discipling people around you. You should be imparting and working with and laboring for and praying with and instructing people in this room, people in your church, people in your family who know Jesus. And there are two things that shape what GCF wants to do on campus. And those two things are discipleship and evangelism. Discipleship is this process, this long-term process of just mining the depths of the gospel, of really figuring out how the gospel fits in every aspect of our life. And evangelism is more of the, the momentary explanation of the gospel, the sharing of the gospel with people who haven't heard it or have an incomplete understanding of it. And let me tell you, these two things, if you were to ask Christians, do you want to be good at discipleship and evangelism? Most people, when they understand those words, like, I want that to be me. You will not be a good disciple. You will not be a good evangelist if you're not consumed with the gospel. You will not be a discipler. You will not be an evangelist if you're not consumed with the gospel because there's nothing to give away. There's nothing with which to instruct. There's nothing with which to convert. But here's the joy. As we grow and as we understand the gospel, if you know the gospel and as you become fascinated with it, you will begin to see discipleship and evangelism in your life. It's the litmus test for Christian maturity. In your own life right now, think about it. Where do you see discipleship happening? You kind of linking up arms with a brother and sister in Christ and, and, and having gospel-centered conversations, reading the Bible with one another, calling out sin in other people's lives, fighting for their worship as they fight for your worship? Where do you see yourself sharing the gospel with people who don't know the gospel? And I say that, one, that should prick our conscience if we don't have those things. But two, to encourage us that the solution to become an evangelist isn't to go and take an eight-week series on being an evangelist. To be an evangelist is to look at the glory of God in the gospel and let that resonate in your hearts and you can't stop sharing that gospel with other people. That doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean it's not awkward. That doesn't mean it's natural, but it means you see the worth of what the gospel has done in your life and it is an obligation you have to share that. And what Paul assumes here is that the church has an obligation. You have an obligation to help other Christians grow in Christ. Whether you are an introvert or whether you are an extrovert, the gospel makes up for all of those insufficiencies. You have a responsibility to share the gospel because you've been saved by it and you've been filled with it. So lastly, we look at the third implication, um, third responsibility that Paul assumes the church will do, and we see this in Romans 15 verse 30, kind of jumping ahead a few paragraphs. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. So here's the last thing. We have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to participate in the work of the gospel. You have the responsibility to, do, to understand it. 
You have the responsibility to do gospel work on your own, but you also have a responsibility to participate in it with other people. And Paul, has, what he's doing here in this prayer is Paul's in Corinth. Corinth is in kind of, if you, if you think of a world map today, it's in Greece. Um, and Paul is writing to a church in Rome. And so there's some separation there. And he's asking these people separated um, sometimes by languages and by a lot of miles and by, by some water. He's saying, I want you to strive with me. I want you to labor with me. And, and what Paul's saying is that we as Christians, we are innately connected to one another because we all share the same gospel call. Paul talks about this, this idea of co-laboring time and time again in his letters. Look at Philippians 1, verses 3 through 5. I thank God in all my remembrance for you, always in every prayer of mine, for you are making my prayers with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then 1 Thessalonians, um, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 3 through 4. We ought to we ought always to give thanks for God to you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all of your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are now enduring. So Paul is talking in Philippians about co-laboring with those in Philippi, though he's not there. And in Thessalonica, he's talking about enduring and suffering with them, though he's not there. You see, not only are we call, are there no such thing as individual Christians, but there's no such thing as individual churches. We ought to, as Christians in a church, we ought to support the work of God in other places globally and locally because we share the same prize. The whole of our life is about the gospel of Jesus Christ going forth. And so a question for you as college students who are so apt, there's no, I know I've said this before, but there's no other four-year period in life where culture tells you to be as obsessed about yourself as you are in college. Study what you want, do what you want, learn what you want, eat what you want, live where you want, make the friends that you want, and no one can tell you otherwise. But what the gospel tells us, what Paul is saying, is that you have a responsibility to be concerned about others, specifically other Christians. Think in your life, how, when was the last time you actively prayed for, for a specific missionary? in a specific part of the world. How many of you know a missionary in a specific part of the world? How many of you, well, you don't have to raise your hand, but I appreciate that. Um, how many of you have prayed for your pastors? How many of you have played, prayed for pastors in your hometown? How many of you have prayed for pastors at Sovereign Hope? How many of you guys have prayed for church plants that you might know are going on here in America? You see, I, was, I didn't pray for those things when I was your age. Um, and when I became a pastor, there's actually, she was my eighth grade history teacher. I went to a Christian school and she messaged me and she, she has this list. And every Tuesday she prays for my ministry along with 13 other, it's kind of cool. So she was, I, she was an eighth grade teacher for, I don't know how many years at our, at our school. Um, and the men who have gone on from her classes over this 15 year time frame who have become pastors, she prays for them every Tuesday. And I never appreciated that until I was a pastor. But I can't tell you knowing that there's someone praying for you guys. Mrs. Cindy Asno prays for you guys every Tuesday. She prays that the gospel equips you 
to evangelize on campus. She's co-laboring with you. Where are you doing that for other believers? Because prayer isn't this thing we do to just check off a list. Prayer is something we do to glorify God and bless those around us. You have a responsibility to be fascinated with the gospel, to be active in the gospel, and to be concerned with the spread of the gospel and to partner with people. One, just think, as college students, we don't make much money, but think about giving to missionaries. We have uh, missionaries, our church supports, we'd love to hook you up with them. And even if it's something like, I'm gonna give $10 a month. I can't tell you one thing that's helped Sarah and I is we don't have a ton of money to give to missionaries, but when we give to them, it really feels like we're cooperating with them. That their labor is, that we're invested in that. I care about the gospel going forth in South Africa because I support Luke and Aaron Lacey. I care about the gospel being proclaimed in the Middle East because I support Channel Philip. Um, and it, it, I'm more blessed by it. It sounds cliche, but I, I, I've never been more concerned about people in the Middle East or in Africa than I have than when I started giving to those missionaries. I encourage you to think about that. Think about doing that with your finances. And to see what it looks like when we're obsessed, when we're active, and when we're concerned, we only have to look at Paul himself. You see, Paul's closing not only shows us responsibilities that we have, but also shows us Paul is a role model. Paul is a gospel role model. Now, we live in a world where we love to worship and enthrone man and follow him and listen to him um, and, and just bow down at what man can accomplish or what man can do. So there should be a natural pause here. When anyone says, I want you to follow whoever it is if that person's name isn't Jesus, there should be a pause. You should pause in that moment um, because Paul, though he was an apostle, was human. Paul, though he wrote the majority of the New Testament, was a sinner. Paul, though he suffered much for the glory of Christ, was imperfect. But God chose Paul to be an apostle. And Paul's goal wasn't to create a bunch of little Pauls. It was to create a bunch of little Christs. Look at what 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says, where Paul says this, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. See, Paul's not calling you to follow him as the end. Paul's attempting to model Christ so that when we see this observable person of Paul in front of us, we know more what Christ looked like. You see, it's safe for you as a Christian, it's safe to want to model men and women who are preoccupied with the gospel. And not only is that safe, but that's good. Now what I want to do now is we're going to read the majority of the rest of this text. It's a longer batch of text, um, but we're going to come back and look at Paul's life. So when we read this, I just want you guys to see what Paul's doing. In this text. What are his desires? What are his words? What is he hoping for? We're going to pick up in verse 15. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. By word and deed, by powers of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, 
Those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a little while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they are pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessing, they ought to be, able to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for you, or I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea and that my service for, for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So big passage here, but we're just going to point out two specific things about um, the Apostle Paul, which should shape our life. Two things that we want to see in our own hearts. The first thing is we want to see Paul's burden for the local church. Paul's burden for the local church. And you see, most of the letters Paul writes in the New Testament are written to churches that he started or at least had a really influential role in starting. However, Paul didn't start the church in Rome. In fact, Paul has never even been to Rome. You see in a lot of his letters, his goal is to get there, but he's never been there. And yet here, here Paul is, there in Rome, he's in Corinth, and he's writing a letter to them. Why? Why, why does Paul care about a church that's already established in Rome? Well, it's because Paul in Acts 9, he converted, or God converted Paul in Acts 9, and he says, I'm going to make you the apostle to the Gentiles. You're going to go out, and you're going to preach the gospel to the Gentile people. And it's exactly this missionary lens that Paul has of going out to where there's no churches that leads Paul to love the local church. And that's because Paul knows that the only place for people to grow in the knowledge of Christ is in the body of Christ. The only place for people to know and grow in the gospel is in the local church. And he uses this language that I want to present the Gentiles as an offering to God holy, sanctified, set apart. Paul knows that the place where you're going to be made complete in God isn't out on your own on top of Waterworks Hill, but it's in the assembly that God has made. It's in the church that Jesus has bought with his own blood, and the church is just the assembly, the ecclesia, where we gather. And Paul's concerned about that. Paul's passionate about that. And it's funny because here we see Paul living for the health of the local church because Paul is in Corinth laboring and writing to the church there where at the same time he's taking up a collection from those in that area to take back to the local church in Jerusalem where at the same time he's writing a letter encouraging the local church in Rome. Paul is obsessed with the local church. Paul desires the local church. But at the same time, we see Paul's zeal for global mission. And, and unfortunately, there's this, typically there are two people in Christian churches. And this is stereotypical, and it's sad, but stereotypes are generally true. That's why they're stereotypes. And we see this stereotype in the church that there are two types of people. 
There's the evangelism guy, the missions guy. Um, and there's this guy where the local church is just static and it's boring and it's not radical enough. If only we could just be out sharing the gospel with people and, and going to the nations, then the church will be doing what the church is supposed to be doing. Some of you might know that person. Some of you might be that person. And then there's the local church guy. The local church guy loves the local church. He loves coming on Sunday, but he loves it because it demands little of him. He shows up on Sunday, he punches his time card, he stands, he worships, he sings, he takes communion, but he maintains a relatively safe life. The missions guy, the local church guy. Paul blows up that paradox. You see, for Paul, to be the local church guy is to be the missions guy. And to be the missions guy is to be the local church guy. The whole reason Paul exists as a missionary is to convert people and tie them into the body of Christ. Look at what uh, Paul says to Titus. What's the reason Paul left Titus behind? Titus 1 verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul here is writing to Titus, and he's saying the reason I left you was to establish leadership in local churches, was to build the local church, was to teach the local church, was to train the local church. So Paul wants the local church, and yet we see in verses 20 and 21, he's also so passionate about evangelism that he's like, I don't want to go where the gospel's been preached, lest I build on someone else's foundation. I want to go beyond that. I want to go to the borderlands of the gospel frontier. And in Paul's day, if you think about the map, the gospel started in Jerusalem and it's been going outward ever since. And so, you know, from Jerusalem, you have the gospel, it's creeping up into Turkey and Asia Minor and it's creeping over into the Baltic Peninsula. And now we see this kind of um, outcropping in Rome, but over in Spain, there's no gospel. And so it wasn't hard when we look at how big our world is, it wasn't hard even in that small space to find someone who didn't know the gospel. Unfortunately, today, it's still not hard to find people who don't know the gospel. And I don't mean people who just don't believe the gospel. I'm talking about people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ who have never had a missionary come, where there's no local church, where there's no gospel translation, where there's no Christian influence at all. In fact, three billion people in our world today live without access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's 42% of our globalized world is damned without the gospel. There is still a great need for people like Paul, who are zealous to cross boundaries and borders to bring the gospel to those who have never heard it. And what's interesting is that the local church, rather than being antithetical to mission, is right at the center of Paul's theology of mission. Look at Romans 1, verses 11 through 12, the beginning of this letter. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. What is that gift? That we might, mutually encur that we might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And again, what we just read in ch chapter 15, verses 24, where Paul says this, 
I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a little while. And then skipping down to verse 32. So that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. So here we have missionary evangelist Paul. Paul was not a pastor. Paul was not a theologian. Paul was straight up missionary. And yet the place where Paul went to is the local church. That's where he was encouraged. And here's the thing. I want GCF to be a sender of missionaries. I pray that some of you in here go outside of America and live among people and preach the gospel there. I want GCF to evangelize the lost in Missoula and in Mumbai. But here's the thing. The passion for missions locally and globally will come from believers who are preoccupied with the gospel and engaged in the local church. Do you want that passion? Do you want that vision? Look at the gospel. Go back to your first responsibility, the gospel and the local church. And I want you to think about this. Paul is probably the greatest missionary the world has ever known. He planted churches on two, maybe even three continents. His sole desire was to go places where the gospel wasn't. And yet Paul's encouragement for the missionary task didn't come from fantastic missions conferences. It didn't come from deep moments of spiritual devotion. It didn't come from emotional fervor. Paul's greatest encouragement for his task of global missions came from the local church. Paul longs to be encouraged by the local church. As a member of a church, do you see yourself encouraging someone like that? When missionaries come to you, when church planners come to you, when evangelists come to you, are you an engaged part of a church that you bless them and they are encouraged by you? And as someone who wants to go do mission, are you encouraged to do that by your church? Because here's the thing. If the Apostle Paul can be encouraged in mission by the local church, so can you. If that's an encouragement to him, how much more will it be for us? Perhaps the problem is where when we don't support, encourage, or participate in such a blessing, it's because we ourselves have too small a view of evangelism and love for the lost. I saw a tweet um, this week. I was going to say a tweet on Twitter, but that's redundant. Um, and it just asked a simple question, and it was, and it was convicting for me. The question was, if God answered all of your prayers this last week, how many of your friends would become Christians? Think about that in your own life. If God answered all of your prayers this last week, how many new converts would there be transformed from death to life, from slavery to freedom, from bondage to joy, from hell to heaven, from wrath to mercy? It's really sobering. It's really revealing that though we might feel content about where we are in Christ, our heart leaves much to be desired. But to be rightly Christian, we need to, like Paul, reshape our lives around the gospel which saves us. 
You see, the gospel reassigns the whole of your life. It's not an addition or an add-on or a remodel to a previous structure. It's a complete overhaul of all of our desires. Our chief occupation, what you live to do if you're converted, is to glorify God. And God is most glorified in the salvation of the lost. Live to that end. Pray to that end. Work to that end. Labor to that end. Strive to that end. Look to Paul and let your emotions be sifted. Paul's emphasis on the local church and global mission is exactly why he was so beneficial to so many believers. Why is Paul such a great joy to these churches? Because he's obsessed with the gospel and people saying Jesus. Why will you be an encouragement to people in this body, in the greater body, in the body abroad? Because you will be obsessed with the gospel and passionate for salvation. My prayer is that we seek to be beneficial to the spiritual growth of others, not because we're good at discipleship, not because we're good at evangelism, not because we're, we're, we're smooth and eloquent with our words. My prayer is that we'll be effective and beneficial to others because we're obsessed with the gospel that saves us. My last point here is important because we can all come to GCF and, and church and Bible study and we can see calls to arms like this. We can see calls to action calls to go do Christian things, to love the gospel, to labor for the gospel, to go to the nations. And we could love it. We could like it. We could even make plans in our lives to start implementing it. But oftentimes how it plays out in our mind is a lot different than how it plays out in life. A lot of times we like to think that we're going to go on the oval and we're just going to have this great desire to walk up to someone we don't know and be like, let me tell you about Jesus. And they'll fall on their knees and they'll start crying and they'll repent all their sin and they'll come and they'll become leaders at GCF and they'll be a missionary and they're going to go away. And we'll be like, that's awesome. But the problem is things don't always happen that way. And that's why Paul's message concludes with the last point, a reliance upon a sovereign God. And in Romans 15, Paul makes his plan clear. He wants to go to Spain. And he speaks clearly about his desire to go to Spain. He says, as I go to Spain. Later he says, as I, and then I will leave for Spain. Paul's making real plans. He has a real desire. But look at Paul's prayer in verses 30 and 33. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So Paul has made plans. Paul is calling the church to pray for those plans and to support those plans. But Paul is bracketing all of those plans. By the will of God, I will come to you. Knowing that God is sovereign didn't mean that Paul's like, I'm just going to wait and see what God has me do. I'm going to wait for tablets to fall from heaven. I'm going to wait for another moment where God, where Jesus audibly speaks to me. If anybody had the precedent to wait for Jesus to audibly speak to them again to tell them what to do, it's Paul. But Paul was so compelled by the gospel, he starts making plans like crazy, but still relies on God's will. And his prayer for God's will includes three things. One, he prays that he'll be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Two, he prays that his gift, this offering he's taking in Macedonia for the poor in Jerusalem, he prays it'll be accepted. And three, he prays um, that he would get to come to Rome, that he'd come to Rome with the full blessing of Christ. As we look at those three prayer requests, the gospel doesn't talk much about the second one. 
We don't really know how his gift was accepted, but we can probably imagine it was accepted well. You know, he's blessing a church with money. That's good. But we also, we do know what happens with his other two prayer requests and how they're fulfilled. See, Paul prayed that he would be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Paul arrives in Jerusalem. He's there for seven days before he's arrested for preaching the gospel. So Paul might have been delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, but he was delivered by the company of the Roman guards. It's probably not how Paul wrote it up. As for his second prayer request, Paul wanted to go to Rome. In fact, God had told him in Romans 9 that you'll be my witness even into Rome. So not only did Paul want to go there, but he knew that's where God wanted him to go. It's interesting, though, that Paul's desire didn't end in Rome. It ended in Spain. Paul wanted more, even though that might not have been what God wanted for him, but it didn't stop him from trying to do it. So Paul prays that he'll go to Rome. Paul makes it to Rome. But look at how he makes it to Rome. Acts 28, verses 14 through 16. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far from the forum, forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Paul ended up in Rome as a prisoner of the state. You see, when Paul came to Rome, it wasn't a celebration of victorious Christian living or of social comfort. Paul didn't waltz into Rome as super apostle Paul, as missionary to the Gentiles, as Christian celebrities. He came to Rome as a prisoner in chains. We also have no record of Paul ever making it to Spain. Tradition has it that Paul was murdered in Rome by Nero under Neroian persecution. One Roman historian named Tacticus who lived during that time said this, surrounding the death of Paul. Therefore, to scotch the rumor that Nero perhaps started this great fire in Rome, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men loathed for their vices, whom the crowd styled as Christians. Christus, from whom they got their name, had been ex executed by the sentence of the procrator Pontius Pilate when Tiberius was emperor, and the pernicious superstition was checked for a short time, only to break out fresh, not only in Judea, the home of the plague, but in Rome itself, where all the horrible and shameful things in the world collect to find a home. First of all, those who confessed were arrested. Then on their information, a huge multitude was, convic was convicted, not so much on the ground of incendiarism as for hatred for the human race. Their execution was made a matter of sport. Some were sewn up in the skins of wild beasts and savaged to death by dogs. Others were fastened to crosses as living torches to serve as lights when daylight failed. Nero made his gardens available for the show and held games in the circus, mingling with the crowd or standing in his chariot in, the, in charioteer's uniform. Hence, although the victims were criminals deserving the severest punishment, pity began to be felt for them because it seemed they were being sacrificed to gratify one man's lust for cruelty rather than for public weal. 
Paul had these great plans. Paul had this great evangelistic vision. Paul had a wonderful picture of the glory of God. He died a prisoner, and he died in shame. He came in a different manner than he thought he would come, and he died in a place he thought he would only visit. And yet his prayer came true. He came to Rome by the will of God with the full blessing of Christ for the good of the church. You see, it was in Paul's Roman imprisonment where he wrote a large majority of his letters to the church that we still have today preserved by the Holy Spirit for our benefit. And it was his understanding of the gospel and the goodness of God over all history that helped him understand his hardship. In 2 Corinthians, Paul reflects on uh, hardships, insults, persecutes, and, and, uh, and imprisonment. And he says, for the sake of Christ, I endure these things. See, Paul, though dying in a manner he thought he would never die, in a place he never wanted to stay, still delighted in the gospel. Still fulfilled what God had called him to do. You see, as you begin to live as Christians, as you look back at the responsibilities that Paul pulled out and applied to your life, you will face opposition. Christianity isn't as easy as nice, stylish Instagram pictures of your devotion. It's not as easy as gathering with like-minded people in a similar protected place and having nice, neat corporate worship sessions. You will face opposition. And if you're not, you're probably not doing it right. You'll face oppositions by your sin as you seek to expose and eradicate the dangling aspects of our old sin nature that still live in our heart. You'll face opposition from those around you as you realize that your your clear and stunning portrait of love doesn't match up with the idea of love that the world has. You'll face opposition, the Bible says, from Satan. He tries to tempt you, tries to lure you away, tries to tarnish and doubt the gospel. So we need to know Paul. We need to look at Christian figures like Paul who have endured these situations well, but more importantly, we need to know Paul's God. And we need to know Paul's gospel because the gospel is the doorway to understanding God. You see, Paul was only able to finish well and his churches were only able to grow because they knew in increasing clarity not seven steps to church growth or eight steps for stellar devotions or six tips for great Instagram pictures. They were able to grow because with great clarity and great passion and great fascination, they understood the gospel. It's only gospel clarity which will bring this sort of transformation to your life. One author Os Guinness says this, this, I think this is really striking. The poorer our understanding is in coming to faith, the more we need to understand everything after coming to faith. If we do not know why we trust God in the beginning, then we will always need to know exactly what God is doing in order to trust him. Failing to grasp that, we may not be able to continue trusting him for anything we do not understand may count decisively against what we are able to trust. If, on the other hand, we do know why we trust God, we will be able to trust him in situations where we do not understand what he's doing. For what God is doing may be ambiguous, but it will not be inherently contradictory. It may be mysterious to us, but mystery is only inscrutable. What would be insufferable is absurdity. 
What a great picture. If you don't know the beauty of the gospel, why would you trust God? If you don't know the depth of what Christ did to save you, why would you endure hardship? If you don't know the power of the gospel, why would you expect it to change you? But my prayer is, as we look into the summer, and as we look into next year, that we know the gospel, and we know our responsibility in light of it. I pray that we live in such a way that we are encouraged in our hardship because we have seen men and women like Paul who have gone before us and lived faithfully before a sovereign God. But I also pray that we may live well because we have a gospel which is nearer to us than even Paul. I pray that we endure because we know that God is good and sovereign and he has equipped you, his church, to do what he's called us to do in his word. And it's only when we know such a hope that we can even think about reframing our priorities. So this summer, as you look at your break, look at it not as a Christian, or excuse me, look at it not as a student, but look at it as a Christian. Where's the gospel in your summer? Where's the obligations, the gospel implications on your friendships, on your careers, and on your free time? For we have a responsibility, and we have gospel role models, but more importantly, we have a wonderful, powerful, and saving King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we pray thanking you. As, as Hebrews says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off uh, everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. We thank you that you didn't give us Paul merely to give us scripture. You didn't give us Paul merely to tell us that someone has done great things, but you gave us Paul as a witness and an example to the power of the gospel. And you've given all of us in different places in our lives, you've given us other individuals who have modeled that well, and I thank you for that, Lord. But I pray that what was modeled to us, what has been preached to us, tr uh, transcends just mere head knowledge and observation and it becomes heart knowledge applied through the power of the Holy Spirit so, the, so that we might be entertained by the beauty of the gospel. That we do not, would not dare move past the gospel, but we would instead seek to find greater clarity in what the gospel is and what it means to our life. I pray that we'll be so consumed with the gospel that we can't not but help those around us with it. We can't help but uh, look at sin and, and things that tear us away from Jesus in the life of our friends and move towards them with grace and compassion and say, I want you to get stronger in Jesus so I can be stronger in Jesus so that we might minister more boldly for the gospel of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you reaffirm our hearts with the gospel where the most horrible thing the world could have ever done in the murder of the only perfect sinless man was simultaneously the greatest thing that was ever done. And may that shape our view of hardship as we attempt to live as Christians. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for Paul. We thank you for the church. May we labor well. We pray this in your name. Amen.